This is the story of a boy and his dream. But more than that, it is the story of an American boy in a dream that is truly American. The year 1928, the time spring. If you were a young man, your thoughts were undoubtedly turning to those of love. But if you were a young boy, your thoughts were of one thing, baseball. Welcome back to Hooing Company. It's episode 50. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. This month, our guest is the multi-talented writer and artist John Jennings. We'll discuss his work as a professor of media and cultural studies, the origin of his love of horror and comics, and of course, Doctor Who. Then we get behind the wheel and drive deep into Lovecraft Country, John's pick of the month. We discuss its pulp roots and academic significance, its impact on audiences during the 2020 protests, it's constant feeling of dread and really everything. Seriously, consider this your spoiler warning because if you haven't started Lovecraft Country, stop what you're doing, give it a watch, and come back to us. And all that's coming up right after this. Her name was Young Jess. She was a nurse. Your unit shot some of us at checkpoint, then dragged her away. She was a common sympathizer. Is that what you tell yourself? I was following orders. Who knows how many lives I saved by doing what I did. Is it a balance how many you have taken? The ones that keep you up at night and sobbing? There's no book for you to escape what you have done. You knew this entire time and didn't say a word? Gee, you made me care for you. What's wrong with you? Nothing is wrong with me. You're the monster. Why did you agree to go out with me then? Because I was going to kill you. But I didn't. Because I've never felt this way either. You murdered my best friend, and then you sa- And then you saved me, I think. The first time I saw you at the hospital, the anger shot through me like lightning. And then all I could see was a murderer. And then I got to know you, and I realized how this war has torn you apart. We've both done monstrous things. But that does not make us monsters. Our guest this month is a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside. His adaptation of Octavia Butler's Kindred won him an Eisner and a Bram Stoker Award. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's the founder and creator and curator of the Abrams Megascope line of graphic novels. And you can see him on the newly released Disney Plus documentary Behind the Mask. John Jennings, welcome to Who and Company. 
Hey, thank you so much, Drew, for having me. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you about all things who and all the things I'm up to as well. <laughs> we are so excited to have you. Uh, this is great. Um, this has been one of those things where, like, right from the get-go, we knew you wanted you on. It's time. It's our 50th episode. Let's do this. But, of course, like every episode we've had for the last, I can't believe I'm saying this, 11 months we're going to start off with doing a quarantine check-in and just yeah. see how everybody's doing. How are you handling this, our global pandemic? Well, I mean, um, it's, it's been rough, of course. I mean, uh, uh, like I, I did have a lot of upheaval. I was very fortunate uh, as a professor that when the lockdown happened in California, uh, we locked down really fast at first. And uh, I was teaching... Uh, I teach in the quarter system. So basically the pandemic shutdown happened right at the end of, uh, I think it would, it must've been, I don't even remember what time it was, but I think it was like the spring quarter. <laughs> I don't even, yeah, the spring quarter. And, um, yeah, and yeah, so I had two weeks to kind of like work around, like how do I translate this in, into a, an, an online experience, you know? And I'm so used to teaching like in person. So that was a huge upheaval. Um, you know, just because of how the, how the pandemic was politicized, you know, we, there was a lot of different things around like the mask wearing here in California that was kind of, you know, unsettling. Um, of course, you know, on top of that, we did have like a lot of protests about the George Floyd murder. And so, yeah, and then Breonna Taylor and the list goes on and on. So, you know, all of that was happening. And then of course, you know, I'm a new dad. So I actually have a 19 month old boy named Jackson Kirby, named for lots of things including jack kirby <laughs> so it's like, um yeah and so it's been really interesting and so there's been like this bleeding between like you know home life and and uh and and raising him and just trying to be present and trying not to lose my mind uh, and then of course you know we launched a new uh lot a lot of books from abrams and that was really crazy <laughs> so it's like, yeah because everything got you know public publishing in, in general has been like just disrupted and then of course you have the mainstream comics industry where like you know dc left uh diamond uh distri distribution and i know a lot of people who just got kicked off of books and people lost their job it's just been crazy so yeah you know all those things and then but now i think um i'm in more of a rhythm i've become more of a morning person actually uh i get mm -hmm. up a lot anywhere from like five or six in the morning, usually five, honestly, I've been trying to take it easy because I was just getting over like some, some uh, baby germs, but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's, it's getting better. Um, I'm hoping that we can open up soon, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to close down this quarter and, you know, next, uh, next quarter we're teaching, teaching Afrofuturism and the visual cultures of horror. Yeah. So, that's gonna be good. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I think like, I kind of feel like uh, that. Uh, that's right up our alley as far as our oh, conversations yeah, for today. today, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Brent, it's been uh, a while since I've I've chatted with you. How are you doing? Good. Uh, things are going pretty well here. Uh, nothing really new to report. Um, the parents are fine. They had COVID, but uh, they're both fine now. They've had their first shot. They're getting the second one next week. Nice. So uh, that's that's good. Uh, TV wise, I've just finished Deep Space Nine season six and Voyager season four, and uh, those were really good. Um, and the wife of mm. I, the wife and I have been watching uh, Clarice and mm. the e the Equalizer. Both uh -huh. are really really good shows, and uh, 
The yeah. '80s version of the Equalizer was my favorite show at the time. And I used to love. Oh man, I used to love oh, yeah. the Equalizer back in the love day. <laughs> and the Denzel movies were really great too. Um, and yeah. this new version with Queen Latifah is is really good. The style is a lot like the old series. Good, good. But just with all the modern updates, you know, like cell phones, the internet, that kind of sure. thing. So, uh, yeah, highly recommend both of those shows. They're really good. That's cool. Yeah, I I got almost nothing to report on the television front. Uh, we finished yeah. a rewatch of Scrubs fairly recently. Um, <laughs> we're thoroughly invested in WandaVision. Uh, no spoilers I there. Spoilers. I have. I'm a, mm, okay. Oh. It is, it's, I'm just going to say this. I wasn't sure after the first two episodes, episode three and episode four hit. And I'm like, this might be my favorite show I've seen in a while. It's, it's, it's what I need right now. Um, but as far as TV is concerned, I have really failed in my rewatchability of, of programming. Like I've fallen back into what is super comfortable, which is reruns of the great British baking show, uh, which is sort of like, it's, it is a stress-free kind of uh with, with school and everything i i've fallen back into movies and i'll talk a little bit more about what i've been watching here in a little bit um so yeah oh and i got my first uh vaccine shot yesterday uh arms a little sore but i'm really excited that by the end of march i will i will have gotten my second one so that's pretty cool i'm excited cool. about that yeah. yeah we should be next up soon i'm a teacher so hopefully I'll yeah be- yeah we're dealing we're dealing with so much of the public that they're they're kind of letting us so let's actually talk about um what you teach because john you are a professional uh, professor of media and cultural studies and and that's going to get covered a lot today I, I believe so just what exactly does that entail well uh what's really cool is that you know uh mcs as they call it here at the university of california riverside it's a relatively new program it's spun out of english uh, mm-hmm. actually because what started happening, I want to say that the program's only been around for maybe like a little under a decade, you know, mm-hmm. which is, you know, on a university campus, that's a, that's a young program, you know. Um, <clears throat> so what happened was, you know, there were a lot of people um, in English who started studying other types of texts. So comics, film, dance, all these types of things. And basically created this very interdisciplinary uh, practice and teaching strategy, you know, and that's how MCS uh, was formed. And we're in the College of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, right, which is like the, one of the largest uh, schools on the campus. Uh, yeah, so basically my background, as you know, is art. So I, I had been teaching design for about 20 years or so, give or take, since I've you know, been in the academy. And um, I don't know, I, I just felt like a lot of my work was starting to become more uh, in the line of what they call critical making, you know, the mm-hmm. idea of like doing research and then making projects based off of it. Cause you can look at stuff like Black Kirby and things like that, that I've been into that started to steer that way. And so, yeah, when my wife wanted to leave Buffalo, <laughs> um, she was like, you, we gotta, we, you have to go on the market I'm like, immediately. <laughs> I was like, okay. And yeah, so Nalo Hopkinson, who you might know, you know, as a science fiction writer, she works here as well. She recruited me to come. Oh, and work. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, this is the other thing that's cool is that, um, you know, you can get a PhD in science fiction studies here at UC, UCR. Yes. So I'm moving to California. Moving to California, uh. exactly. <laughs> yeah, because the, of the Eden Archive, you know, so it's like one mm-hmm. of the largest science fiction repositories in the country. So, yeah, this family called Eaton, you know, they, they gave a lot of their sci-fi wares to um, the, the, the Rivera Library. So 
that was another reason why I came out here. Cheryl Vent, who's a world-renowned uh, science fiction scholar, works here too. So she's also part of our program. So I'm actually like a, I'm actually have a toe in creative writing. That's what Nalo is in. So um, basically the classes I teach, um, I'm at a point in my career where I, where I teach, only teach the classes that I design, you know? So, um, and basically what happened is like, they're all part of, these are not special topics classes. These are classes that have been added to the, um, the actual curriculum, you know, for, for MCS. So um, one of the first classes I designed was called uh, Comics and Contemporary Culture. So it really is like just an examination of comics, and, uh, the identity of comics, so, so to speak. When we talk about comics and identity, we don't talk enough about like how people view comics in our culture, you know? And so we have two tracks in there. We look at superheroes, which is like how people think about comics. And then we look at all this other like wild stuff that most people never even heard of, you know? <laughs> so, that, so, so you get this kind of like, this is what people think and this is what it really is kind of thing, right? And so it's, a, it's a, always been a popular uh, um, subject. And so then I teach three classes on Afrofuturism. Nice. <laughs> One is on aesthetics. Uh, well, we kind of, it's like an intro to the, the concept of Afrofuturism or Black speculative culture, whatever you want to call it. And we look at different aspects of it. You know, we, and it's, it's a, um, I don't teach any more studio classes. So it's all lecture based and, you know, more like seminar based. And um, I just developed, my second course that I developed is called Afrofuturism and the Visual Cultures of Horror. Also, uh, the nickname is the Get Out class. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, yeah, right, sure. I'm like, race and representation and horror and, and stuff like that. And then the final class that I finally got on the book, so it took me a while because I was trying to figure out what the class was, was it's called Afrofuturism and, and the, um, the Politics of the Black Superhero. Nice. Oh. Yeah, oh. so it's like the Luke Cage Black Lightning class, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, yeah, no. John, John, this is, this is all I want. This it's is all I want right. in the world. It's, even, it's, it's all I want. Fair. It's uh, uh, it. I'm in the wrong hey, degree. Let me know if you want to. See, if y'all, if Brent, you too, if y'all want to audit, let me know because All we're right. teaching it on Zoom right now. So. <laughs> um, yes. Do, like, yes. Do they have? Do they have? Do they have a graduate program in uh, MCS? We're working on it right now. Will you let me know we're when we're that is done? Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm, I am, I am, I am. We actually, it's funny you mentioned that because we have a meeting on Tuesday uh, for the next steps because we're trying to get a, a PhD in media studies. Yep. That's, that's, there's more than I, I'm probably willing to create, but I say that now, but uh, yeah. No, but the thing is like we, you know, it's because of how interdisciplinary we are, because we, we have like filmmakers, we have people who do dance, mm-hmm. we have people who do like theater. Um, sure. We have a guy who studies, uh, <laughs> He studies like uh, science fiction scores from film. You know, he's a yes. he's, he's a music. You know, uh, Tim Lebor is his name. Yeah, we have two. We have, like, several, several gaming. Um, you know, several gaming professors now, and you know, we actually have a minor, like an undergrad minor in sci-fi. You know, so yeah, that's so, so cool. That's yeah, it's pretty. That's anyway, so, cool. so that's what I. Do. <laughs> you know, when you say gaming, are you talking like video gaming? Or are we talking board all game and tabletop? Okay, all of gaming. Them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All the games. nice. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Hey John, uh, for those who may not know, um, could you explain what uh, Afrofuturism and maybe ethnogothic are? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, really quickly. So um, Afrofuturism is a term that was coined by the scholar Mark Derry around 1994 in his book, uh, Flame Wars. And it's a, book, it's a collection of essays about cyberculture. 
you know, this is the beginning of this thing called the World Wide Web. I don't know if you're familiar with it. <laughs> all, but that's WW, you know, the hyperglobal meganet. That's the oh. nickname for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it's all about like culture and, and the web. And so what Mark Derry came up with was like, you know, first of all, he had a question. It's like, well, where are all the black science fiction writers? That's kind of like the, the thesis of the, of the piece. And it's really interesting because the, the piece itself is called uh, Black to the Future. It's kind of a pastiche of interviews uh, between like Samuel Delaney, Greg Tate, and Trisha Rose. And also him postulating this idea of Afrofuturism, which is essentially is like looking at the dearth of representation of Black people in, in future, you know, literature, that kind of thing. Um, and, so that, and so in that, he comes up with this, this term and I love the fact that in the definition, he says, for lack of a better word, this cultural aesthetic, I'm gonna call it Afrofuturism for right now, you know? But essentially he's looking at like uh, music, you know, writing, graphic, not actually he, he does posit comics because at the time, you know, milestone media is jumping off like with Static Shock. And right, stuff like sure. That. So he puts that into that space too, but he's really looking at the like cybernetic aesthetics and mm -hmm. the kind of reclamation of past histories, but also moving into the future around Blackness and how it's portrayed. So that's kind of like a general idea. But if you've seen stuff like, you know, the work of Sun Ra, the, the experimental jazz musician, or like in, in, in music, we're looking at people like, you know, Parliament Funkadelic with, you know, George Clinton mm. and stuff like that. The idea of like transcending the space, you know, and going and, and basically, be, you know, creating a, a space of inclusion for Black folk in the future, you know, that's kind of like, I was all really transcendental and, 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 and wild, but yeah, that's, that's some of the things we talk about. Now, as far as like the ethnogothic goes, that was a, it's a term that me and my friend Stanford Carpenter came up with. We were actually literally like in Chicago eating pizza on his couch, you know, <laughs> I was for like a, whatever Comic-Con I was there for. And we are just talking about some of the ideas around like how Afrofuturism seemed to be, started to become like this giant catch-all for anything dealing with black speculation, you know? Right. And I'm like, well, there's certain aspects of like genre, you know, like for instance, I mean, you know, like the Kindred, for instance, I, I don't think of it as like sci-fi. In fact, you know, um, Octavia Butler calls it a grim fantasy, right? Right, sure. She doesn't refer to it as sci-fi. It has speculative elements and it's a time travel story, mm -hmm. right? But it, but it actually has more akin to the Gothic. You know, if you look at like Gothic literature, you know, it has like this wild like love triangle. It has this kind of like secret artifact that unlocks the key to the you know to the rest of the story there's a doppelganger she has a doppelganger in the past she's being drawn back through time inexplicably you know there's a little bit of body horror because she loses her arm you know on the way you know that at the beginning or at the end depending upon how you look at it right and um yeah and so i came with this term ethnogothic to to think about well you know how do you get to the afro future if you have all of this these traumas weighing you down so to speak. Mm -hmm. So in some ways you have to kind of like let those things go, uh, name them so you can either like deal with them or control them so you can get and move to the Afro future. I always use Erica Badu's uh, song, Bag Lady. I don't know if you ever heard right. it. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bag Lady. So basically in the song's narrative, Erica Badu sees a bag lady who has all these bags on her and she's trying to get on the bus. She's like, mm -hmm. you know, bag lady, you gonna miss your bus. That's the whole thing, right? So, but imagine in those bags are like, you know, different types of trauma, oppression, slavery, whatever is wearing you down. Mm -hmm. You got to let those go because she says you got to pack light, right? So you get on that bus. And I think that bus is going to the Afro future. That makes sense. I <laughs> love so that. Like, I love yeah. that. 
That's, that's really cool. That's a really good way of, I mean, if you're familiar with the song too, in particular, that's a really great way of, of looking at it. Nice. That's why I like it. It's like letting the, letting the trauma go catharsis, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think it's a lot more uh, p- um, positive than, you know, than some than other aspects of horror because it has horror elements. So it's like using like the Gothic elements, like the ghost, haunted spaces, the uncanny, the you know, but to talk about transcending that trauma. So Nice. I mean, a lot of your work uh, involves horror. I mean, let's mm-hmm. go and comics and a combination of both. So was that a part of your, a big part of your upbringing? You know what it was actually. Um, my mom was a massive consumer of horror and sci-fi. <laughs> I was very fortunate. She's one of the coolest moms on the planet. Um, yeah, so I watched a lot of inappropriate movies with her and we would discuss them afterwards, you know. Uh, I grew up in grind houses. You know, I went, we would mm-hmm. go to Jackson, Mississippi, Cinema West 1 and 2, and it was, it was a second run movie theater. And we would see all kinds of unseemly B movies, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so she got me hooked on stuff real early. I mean, the first, I think the first like serious writer that I remember reading early on was Edgar Allan Poe. Nice, cool. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Mississippi, so you know, I grew up in like a very agrarian space. And then my my grandmother probably was a root worker, you know. Uh-huh. I think just just looking back at my research now through Conjure and Hoodoo and root culture. The stuff that she would say at the time sounded like it was like being superstitious and stuff. But now looking at it, she's actually, you know, I think, and also the fact that she made all these remedies from like plants and stuff. I was like, I think my grandmother was a was a was a root worker, and you know, had, it was on, it was on the sly. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So yeah, imagine yeah, like, yeah. you know, a grandmother that's telling you spook stories and hate stories, and then your mother is like, let's go watch this crazy bloody ninja movie. You know. What I'm <laughs> It says a lot that you say called a hate story too. Like that, yeah, yeah, no, for real. That, 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 exactly. that, that's, that speaks a lot to where you're, you're being raised. That's right. <laughs> yes, it does. We were having a discussion uh, fairly recently um, on a, another podcast about Southern ghost stories. Mm-hmm. When you start getting to a, when you start getting down to calling them hates, the wet ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. So growing up, okay. You're exposed to uh, Poe. Brilliant. Yeah. You're exposed to all these movies. I'm assuming you, you, you're reading comics in there as well. My mom, my mom actually gave me my first comics. Like she, cause I was a huge, I was really into like mythology. Cause you know, mm-hmm. I was, I, you know, I grew up by myself until my, well, mostly I, I might as well have grew up, but even when my, my younger sister's only like three years younger than me, but I might as well have been by myself. Right. And I was in my head a lot. Like I wasn't really, I had friends, but I was like at school, you know, and I lived, we lived in the, in, the sticks essentially of the sticks. <laughs> so, you know, we would have to like, I literally lived on like a dirt road and you know, that kind of thing. And I was raised by my grandparents and my mom and she noticed that I was an avid reader. And so she was always, she always had a book in front of me, you know, and even with comics, she was like, okay, well, these are books. So, you know, and the, the mighty Thor reminded me of the Norse God Thor. So I think the same uh, character but just like you know stanley and jack kirby's version a lot more jazzed up so you know yeah and i think that's actually what created this uh obsession that became part of my career path <laughs> you know <laughs> since then i just started trying to read everything that looked like a comic book it wasn't just superheroes it was everything and then um you know in the 1970s remember they had those like dc comics had those kind of like ec comics knockoff books like yeah you know, you know, Tales from Unexpected and Ghosts and Doctor 13 and, you know, House of Secrets. And, you know, I was really in all that stuff. And of course, also, I was into the Warren books, you know, I was into, right. into 
you know, Creepy Eerie and The Rook and all that stuff, right? And then, yeah, so I was always reading a lot of speculative fiction and anything that looked like a comic book from like Asterix to Archie, I was trying to read it. Hot stuff, it didn't even matter. You know what I'm saying? I was just like comics, you know, so. Well, did you have a favorite comic or even a favorite horror film back then? You know what? My favorite comic at first uh, was anything dealing with Popeye. <laughs> I was a really big Popeye <laughs> fan back when I was a young, younger, you know? And, but the, then after I read like Frank Miller's Daredevil, like Daredevil was my favorite oh. superhero. I'm a Daredevil fanatic. I just, oh, yeah. I think Matt Murdock is just one of the best design characters. I just, you know, it's ironic, right? Cause I'm, you know, I'm this like poor black kid growing up in the middle of Mississippi and he's like this poor, like, you know, white Irish Catholic dude, you know, <laughs> growing up in the middle of Hell's Kitchen. And I think that Miller's portrayal of that character, I just, I just resonated with me. You know what I'm saying? I just really loved it. I just loved it. And actually, and Miller's style, actually, you could probably see, like, with, you know, I, I emulate things in his style. But, um, yeah, so Daredevil was my, my dude. <laughs> I loved it. As far as, like, favorite horror movies, that's a, mm. you know, a, a movie that messed me up when I saw it <laughs> was Phantasm. Oh, yes! Man, man oh, yeah. Phantasm. I was like, because here's the thing, because I understood, like, ghosts. I understood the concept of ghosts. I understood, like, you know, well, if it's a werewolf, you can kill it with silver, you know what I'm saying? Or if it's a vampire, you can, like, you know, stab him in the heart, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Um, we didn't understand the rules for the tall man, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't, <laughs> you know, understand, like, I'm like, wait, but how do we get rid of this thing, you know, and the, the whole silver ball thing? And then, of course, like, at the end of it, you know, you don't know that there's going to be sequels. I mean, essentially, the little kid gets, he, he, he gets it, and he dies at the end, if, if you don't know that there's going to be sequels. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? You're like, whoa, well, at least he gets stolen and turned into one of those little dudes, you know? So, yeah, that, was, that freaked me out, man. <laughs> I mean, what's amazing about that film is it crosses genres, and it crosses genres so well, because in, in, a, in a sense, it's sort of a kids on bikes, uh, sort of a thing where, you know, like small town kids, something weird's yep. happening. It's yep. almost like Goonies-esque and they're investigating. And yep. then there's definitely like this element of horror and you see some really horrific visceral horror in ways that you don't. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I don't, I think it's the only movie I've ever seen where you actually see a human being urinating themselves. Um, right. Like it's, it's, it's like the, bo- it's true body horror. It's, and yes, then it, body horror. Yeah. And then it becomes science fiction. Yep. And it's like, it's very hard for Brent. Are you familiar with Phantasm? I'm, I'm, I'm throwing all I this saw, stuff out there. I saw like the first three, like a long time okay, ago. Gotcha. I, okay. All I remember is the ball and like it drills right. in your head. And, and then like, Angus Grimm, who, you know, first yeah. of all, his name is Angus Grimm. So yeah. he's going to play the tall man, boy. You know, it's like, oh my God, just like, he's so iconic, you know. Um, I used to I, love the fact that in the trait, like in the, the Indicia at the end of the movie is like in the copyright, you will notice that it says, or face the wrath of the tall man in the actual like copyright. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. What a film. Actually, kind of interesting because we are going to be talking about horror um, in many different versions. And, and so kind of what, what scared you as it, so phantasm, it scared you as a child. I mean, we talked about yeah. favorite, but like that one, that one messed you up. Is that what? Well, yeah, it did. I mean, favorite. Oh man. So I liked a lot of the, um, I like a lot of TV stuff too, like a little Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. the Night Stalker. You know? Oh my God, yes. Yeah, actually, yeah. you know, another one of my favorite horror movies from when I was a kid was The Manitou. You know, you ever seen The Manitou? Um, many, many, because it's sort of like a werewolf film, right? But except it's, it's... kind of, a, it's kind of a, well, nah, nah, it's more like. Oh, no, wait, sorry, I was thinking Wolfen. Never mind. No, not Wolfen. No, no, this is no, yeah, yeah, right. You definitely write Native American. Native uh, American, right? Probably. 
you know, uh, politically incorrect, all to be damned. But you know, it's about this 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 white lady who gets like a, a growth on her body that turns out to be a gestating evil medicine man <laughs> <laughs> from a try. Yeah, and so yeah, it's uh, <coughs> it's it's freaky, man. And then um, on stuff like uh, the Sentinel is another one of my favorite. Oh movies. God, yes, it's really good. I, I love I love that weird like old school strange horror you know mm-hmm. um yeah and and i guess i've always had a, an affinity for you know what i i didn't realize was lovecraftian horror but that's you know it kind of spins that way you know he's he's influenced like a lot of my favorite writers like clive barker and stephen king and mm-hmm. peter Straub and you know list goes on and on you know yeah victor laval obviously. yeah oh yeah well brent what about you did you what scared you as a kid well you guys are going to laugh, but uh, weird things scared me as a kid, uh, other than usual stuff like The Shining and Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things that scared me were like extreme close-ups in movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, and makes- any kind of like grainy 60s or 70s horror movie kind of creeps me out. Um, I love that this is about – it's not about a subject matter, but how it's presented to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and I think that. that's – that's fascinating, Brent. I love this. Yeah, and by far, uh, as far as movie characters, Jason from Friday the 13th uh-huh. movies and yeah. his mom, because that chick was terrifying. Yeah, she's not right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think those types of like more moody things, like, I don't know. Yeah, those, yeah, stuff like The Devil's Reign, you know, mm-hmm. freaked me out too, because, you know, first of all, it's like as a kid, you just think of one character as being that character, and then you start realizing, oh, wait a minute, they do different parts. Ah, right. Okay, so Captain Kirk and the devil, I don't know. Yeah, don't know yeah a little it. weird. <laughs> or, or also uh, staying up late when your parents go to bed, and you're in the living room, and it's like 1130 at night. There's a local station here that uh, used to show uh, late night movies on Saturday nights at 1130, and you yeah. never knew what they were going to show. Sometimes it was drama, sometimes it was comedy, horror, whatever, and I'd be flipping channels, and I flip by, and all of a sudden I flip by there, and there's like some scary thing like right there in my face, and I'm like, ah! It's yeah. time to go to bed. So. <laughs> um, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, both of you guys are a little older than I am, and I think so. You, there's a certain level of horror that maybe I wasn't, I wasn't shown. So I, I think all my scary things that that occurs to me, like when I think of things that scare me, Brent, if you think we're gonna laugh at what you said, wait to hear this. All right, here you want my two two most traumatic images when i think of horror as a childhood number one first and foremost is always going to be et oh, wow. that the scene where elliot is running through the cornfield and et just pops up and screams in his flashlight oh wow i'm saying that and i actually feel a twinge like it's such <laughs> a visceral yeah. embedded fear right. trigger in my body yeah. that i couldn't look out windows to Hmm. because I would ima- every time I would look out a window and you couldn't see anything at night, I would imagine E.T. popping up and screaming. And it was just, <laughs> it's supposed to be fun and loving, but when you take something that everyone's talking about and everyone loves and you throw it into this horrific situation, yeah. it's that flip, right? That it's of, of something that's supposed to be good and you're supposed to love it. And we had, I had the toy, I had stickers before I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, in 82, because I'm five years old at this time. Right. But to actually see it and that first reaction, you know, that terrified me. And it was like, and the other thing, and this is where you really are going to laugh, was the very first episode of Fraggle Rock I ever saw. 
And okay. <laughs> and so I looked it up the other day because I've been really deeply thinking about horror recently. And I always remember this fraggle eating clam. And the idea was um, I'm, I'm five or six years old. I'm at a friend's house. We're spending the night. And I know that we watched two things that evening. We watched Fraggle Rock for the very first time. And I watched American Werewolf in London for the very first time. And the thing that scared me was Fraggle Rock. <laughs> and so more I than just, the werewolf movie. That's funny. More than the werewolf movie because in the thing, and I looked it up. So the other night it's called the terrible tunnel and they go to the storyteller and she says, I'll tell you any story you want to hear. And they're like, well, tell us about the terrible tunnel. No, I don't want to tell you about that. So that already is, you know, like the storyteller's scared and it's this tunnel that you get lost in and you never come back. And they sing songs about never coming back. And eventually That's the group terrifying. goes in <laughs> and it's a tunnel that is sentient and it closes around you. And when it kills you, you become a ghost. And it's the idea that a puppet could die and become a ghost, just I, just snap something in me and it what, freaks me out. Up, what happens to the human? You know what, I don't even want to think about that. Yeah, yeah, the hand, the, hands, <laughs> the hand goes somewhere else. But yeah, That's right. terrible. That is you know, so I, terrible. I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up on Fraggle Rock, but uh, my wife did. And so I bought her like the first season, maybe three or four years ago. And so I surprised her with it, and I was like, hey, look at this. So we watched, like, the first few episodes, and it really is, like, a dark version of the Muppets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what Fraggle Rock is. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like Scary Muppets. <laughs> yeah, so I get it, yeah. And that, anyway. that episode came out on my birthday <laughs> uh, when, when I was, like, six years old. I was like, it's, it's anniversary is going to be, like, in two days. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I just turned 50, Venus yeah. the 50th, uh, in November. So, oh yeah, well yeah. this is a, this is episode yeah. is coming out on my forty fourth birthday in uh-huh. a couple of days, so um, yeah okay well that, that's what scares us. I, there's I mean there are other things like um, the troll from Cat's Eye, the Stephen King short yeah. film series. Uh, yeah, I can see that. The yeah. idea that it could open up the wall and come into my house unbidden. Right. There's no way to pre- prepare, your, and it's small. The idea of a small thing crawling up my bed and, and stabbing yeah. me. You know what messed me up, actually, as far as like sto- like stories that are like that, was uh, Sand Kings by uh, oh Martin, George R. R. Martin. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was the first time I've ever been like straight up terrified by prose. You know what I'm saying? I was like, "Yo, this is not right." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I swear Sand Kings was terrifying. Kings was messed up, man. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. You talk about yeah. prose. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager and I read Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And oh, there, cemetery is really scary, actually. Yeah, that is the only time written words have ever scared me. It was, it was a scene in there that wasn't in the movie. And, well, I think it might have been in the remake. But it was when he's talking about, he's, de- he's describing her deformed sister. Yeah. And something yeah. about that chapter freaked me out. I was like, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, I just, um, it, neither one of the movies actually have captured the, the mm-hmm. macabre test in that, mm-hmm. you know. But anyway, so, yeah, terrifying. <laughs> so, <man. laughs> I don't know if I've ever been afraid of, of reading something. I'm sure there's probably an example of it. Uh, but Whoa. anyway, Sand King. Well, Sand Kings is disturbing and I like disturbing. Um, yeah. And- yeah, that's true. I mean, I, um, yeah, that's the type of, I mean, body horror has always been like one of my favorite. Th- I mean, I've always been, a, I seem like I've always been a Cronenberg fan. Thank you. Ones, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, but you know, the idea of like, you know, just to kind of, you know, segue into like the Lovecraft stuff. I mean, he's, you know, that stuff is uh, all about the cosmic and all about the things that are outside of us that are, that don't care about us that, you know, <laughs> <and> that would, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, 
that's an interesting uh, concept, you know. Conceptually, I think that stuff is really, really strong, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> we're going to talk about plenty of that. Let's yeah. let's move on to maybe, I guess, less scary topics here just for a mm-hmm. moment because, I mean, this is, a, this is a Doctor Who podcast. We bring our guests in who, who, who are <laughs> fans of Doctor Who. John, you're a fan of Doctor Who. When did you start yeah. watching it? I started watching Doctor Who when I was about... 11, 12, something like that. I, I saw, I was first introduced to the show through um, the fourth doctor. We saw reruns uh, from the BBC on our local PBS station and mm-hmm. it showed daily on, uh, you know, on, um, on our PBS station around six o'clock. So I remember the, I remember seeing the, uh, the ads for it and how they would describe the character. I'd never heard of it before. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you know, he's like alien with two hearts and a body temperature of like 60 some odd, 64 degrees or whatever. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I just fell in love with the character immediately, you know, because my imagination was already hyperactive. So um, at the time, you know, being, this is some super black stuff. My, my grandmother had a floor model television that was color TV that had gotten struck by lightning. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. So, of course, we got the little black and white TV that's on, that sat on top of the big one, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so immediately, the, the original floor model television becomes a piece of furniture, right? So right. I didn't know what color anything was, you know, until much, much later. And so I was able to get, like, Doctor Who magazine and stuff. So I had no idea that the, the Targets was blue. Until, oh, my God, what a weird thing. Yeah, I didn't know until much, much later. I had no idea what color his scarf was, none of that, you know? Yeah. Wow, about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I watched it black and white. Believe it or not, the exact same ha- thing happened to my cousin. Like, uh, his floor model got struck by lightning, and they had right. another thing on top <laughs> of it. it. Yeah, it became a big old piece of because it was a big old TV it's huge. floor model. Yeah, yeah. it's like a freaking like you know, it's like it's like a big giant desk then. You know, what I'm <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. Yeah. So um, yeah, and and what you do is you know you get whatever next TV is, you put it on top of the old TV because <laughs> it's too heavy. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that was that was uh, my first interaction with the character. I just love the fact that this character, you know, was so brilliant and hilarious and fearless and and actually used uh, knowledge to be back evil. You know, I just thought that was great. And, you know, really, you know, I just set set upon me like, you know, that anybody that that one person could change things, you know, what I'm saying that kind of thing. I just Mm. just idea i was brokenhearted when when the fourth the fourth doctor you know regenerated i was not ready <laughs> i was like whoa 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 what what i mean i've heard about this before but this is happening you know after logopolis you know i was like no 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 wait what no is he oh uh, i was traumatized man yeah was Peter Davis so, and, you know, is, is he your favorite tom baker or tom baker's my favorite yeah tom baker's my favorite um i really like peter davison's uh because you know it was a lot to take, you know, to take on that role. But the way he played the doctor was like, he, he was the youngest at the time, but he played him like an old man. Mm-hmm. He actually played him like, like he was ancient, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. tired, you know. And I love the fact that the doctor's compassion uh, came through with that character so well with Peter Davidson. He was just a very compassionate doctor. And also, too, he wasn't a, a sometimes the doctor was a butthole. <laughs> sometimes it's like, <laughs> I'm in charge, I'm the doctor, shut up, you know. Yeah. Peter Davidson, his character was like, okay, Let's work things out. Um, you're in charge, but I'm here to help. You know, you know, it was like that kind of. <laughs> and the other thing was, um, you know, it was the first time I, I had seen. I know that a couple of companions had passed on before, had died before. You know, but 
to see, I really liked Adric a lot. And then, you know, Adric died saving the world from the Cybermen. And um, when Peter Davison's character, uh, when, that, his, when the fifth doctor transitions, that's his last words, was Adric. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just thought that was just really just, you know, summed up what kind of character he was, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, I just, yeah, I like those. I like, I like the doctor a lot. <laughs> so, well, so really what like are your, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, the, the modern series and especially the current season? Are you enjoying that? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm really easy to please. I even like, I liked, uh, I liked all the doctors. I even liked the Peter Cushing stuff, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Cause I just love the concept so much, you know? Um, I found it really interesting well, first of all, like taking the leap and making and making the doctor be like kind of a transgendered character, I think made sense to me. You know what I'm saying? Because it's an, you know the the, tar the the time lords are aliens, right? And you know they can shift from different bodies. I mean, to me, it totally makes sense to me. Um, I thought it was really ballsy to kind of like utilize the doctor in such a way to talk about. Um, you know, the, in, the English as colonizers, because that's what, that's kind of how I read, you know, what happens with the first Gallifreyan that goes and finds this little black girl who happens to be the doctor and we don't know it, you know, um, which I think is really interesting. Uh, because the other thing is that um, I did like the fact that they stopped being like, the first, when, when Jodie Whittaker first gets, gets uh, introduced, you know, they take it upon themselves that every episode has to be like, we're going to talk about this social issue and we're going to talk about this social issue. <laughs> you know, and they finally get a, a black woman to write for the show, uh, which is great. But at the end of it, she's like, and Rosa Parks went on to do that and that. You know, it just becomes a little bit too preachy and not as natural as some of the other, you know, ways that the, the doctors always talked about social issues, always. Sure. And I felt like the doctor has always been a way to critique, you know, colonization because you have this character who fights colonizers, you know? Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so I'm like, that's, that's what the doctor does, you know? So to me, it's always been like this representation of the British kind of working through their issues, you know, as, <laughs> you know, with that character. And I think um, that when we see Jodie Whittaker's doctor um, realizing, first of all, like, whoa, you know, everything I thought about myself is, 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 is odd and, 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 and not true. And the name Doctor Who actually really becomes even more resonant <laughs> in some ways. And you open up the possibility that the Doctor has had even more lives than we could have imagined. You know, that's, that's super interesting. Because the other thing, too, I liked about that series, first of all, I always liked the historical experiences. Like, I loved the, um, when they meet, like, uh, uh, Mary Shelley. I thought that mm -hmm. was really dope. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that they start out with this kind of, like, James Bondian kind of like secret service thing. And he realized that the doctor actually probably was like a, a sleeper agent kind of, I was like, I thought that was really clever. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the, the final season this last season, actually, obviously. Right. Um, <laughs> in general, I, I like all the doctors for different reasons. You know, I like all the doctors for different reasons. I think that they borrow from different uh, versions. I think it takes them a while to get up and running, you know, but I find uh, brilliance in every one of them's per, 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 uh, performance, you know. I hate the fact that Christopher Eccleston only got one season. Mm -hmm. I thought he was a great doctor. Like, again, you know, the, the veneer of, like, control, you know, that you think that he has, but in under it, he's like, I'm totally freaked out, and you should be too. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, by the way, uh, run, <laughs> because bad things are about to happen. Or, this, or the amount of joy that he had 
during like the unearthly ch- well no it was not unearthly child it was the, the um are you my mummy? That yeah, one. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Doctor dances and the yeah, the um, doctor dances and empty uh, child, empty child. Yeah, and he's like everybody lives like the the amount of like because he's seen so much death, yeah, so much turmoil, and for him to actually be like, I can wait, I can save everybody today. I'm gonna dance, you know. <laughs> and it was pretty. <laughs> yeah, it's just I, there's so much in that character, like um, or like when uh, the doctor hides himself away from this alien race just to protect them from him you know yes oh uh, uh, yes yeah, um oh what is it the the the, the family creature. blood thank you yeah yeah yeah. and when the kid starts to describe what he is and how he is it's like the doctor is rage and fire and all this stuff you know it's like yep that's that's who he is or the fact that there's mythology uh around him in the dalek race they call him the, un- the oncoming storm i was like yep that makes sense <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> i yeah. i really love the idea that that the doctor has this mythology and the mythology is not just the canon of the show that we see, but there's so much more. Um, it's sort of like when you, um, I don't remember which episode it is specifically, but River Song, they're talking about fairy tales and, and yeah. River Song says, you know, I really hate it in fairy tales when they talk about the good wizard because it always turns out to be the doctor. And it's like, right. yeah, you know, like we get that with Sylvester McCoy being Merlin, like that, like there's oh, yeah. this idea that yeah. we don't see that. And that's, it feels like in many ways, it's, it's sort of opening the door for writers who are doing books to go, this is for you. We're, we're never going to tell that story through the medium of television, right? The falling back into the doctor's history can be problematic uh, for, for casual viewers, but like people who are writing books, people who are writing comics, go for it. This is yours. This is your playground. Yeah. Have fun with that. Have 10, a hundred Merlin stories. Let's do this. Yeah. Uh, I love that. that, All all that stuff, you know, but no, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, that the character is about mutability. Like everything about Mm -hmm. the show is about mutability. in fact, I was just talking to my friend, Daniel Jose older today, who's a really great science fiction fantasy writer too. And, um, um, he's never watched the show. Oh my. And well, I was like, you know what you got to do, right? I was like, bro, first of all, you need to go and watch Doctor Who. Because I said, like, everything that I try to do, I try to make, I try to Doctor Who about it. And you can't think that I'm originally writing. I'm like, because the amount of flexibility, I mean, you can do a, you can, the show can be about anything. It has been about anything. You know, you have a, you have a character who is ancient, who can look like anybody and travels through time and space on any planet, you know, <laughs> Dude, <laughs> like, how can you? That's, that's a writer's dream. Oh my God, it's so crazy. It's so great. And 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 the reason why it happens is because they ain't got no money. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they have no money. <laughs> like, okay, so we need. <laughs> and this is the other thing that's really fascinating about it too is that the TARDIS at first is representational of this blue police box, right, from the nineteen fifties, right. And then once they get done away with. It's just the TARDIS now. Mm-hmm. I love that. I just the fact now it's just the TARDIS. Like people, I don't even know what it's referring to. And then of course you have like people lampooning it, like Bill and Ted's, you know, excellent adventure. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. It's just oh man, it's it's my favorite thing. I just think it's so so well constructed. And you know, I can see why people can can, can uh, complain about changing stuff. But to me, the central idea about it is that things change. Right. And I love the fact that the Doctor now has no idea about who they are. You know what I'm saying? That's, that is, I mean, the doctor is now a mystery to themselves. You know, that's uh, 
pretty incredible. The way that they pick up um, the story, uh, what was it, The Brain of Morbius? Mm-hmm. Where like you see other identities before the first Doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, you talk about an Easter egg, man. <laughs> right, <laughs> absolutely. Sorry. No, uh, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> There's nothing to, it's just what I love is, you know, especially when you get someone like David Tennant who plays his doctor, like at this kind of ultimate omnipotent being who yes. walks into every situation and knows everything, which I find to be kind of annoying. I get it that you've been around forever and you've been around the block and you, you get things, but like for the doctor not to know something should be the most exciting thing for the doctor, because that's the whole point is the joy of exploration. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain level of dread in thinking that everything that you're that you know up to this point in time might actually be a lie yeah. but that there's also got to be this level of joy in that the the thing that i want to explore and discover most is me it's like me. the idea that exactly. if, if handled correctly this is going to be truly joyless a uh, joyous if handled incorrectly, it's going to be joyless. And I think that's the important thing is how they move forward with that. How they move forward, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, I th- yeah. this could be handled really poorly. This could essentially be thrown away, uh, you know. So I know not everyone loves it. And, I, and I'm, I, I love it because it, it grants a really amazing opportunity to tell great stories. Yes. But I also know it has the potential to really fall flat. And, no, and no, I, no, you're absolutely right, Drew. You know, I, I was excited by it because it just it just took some guts to do something like that and open up, it, it can open up so many other audiences too. You know, mm. I mean, I loved all the, the companions I thought were just so great. Uh, I loved all those companions. Um, I, I love the fact that, you know, you have this older uh, working class white dude who's, who's, whose grandson essentially is this black kid who has this kind of like physical disability, right? And is learning about who he is, right? And the fact that he is talking to this young woman who is a constable who happens to be Indian, you know? And it deals with the idea of how the British Empire is functioning now. And actually in some ways it's talking about like all the issues that they have around nationalism and about sure. representation and stuff too, you know? Um, and the fact that you know, honestly, you know, in, in the UK, a lot of, there's a lot of racial issues around, you know, people of Indian descent and they just go ahead and make the master Indian. Damn. I yeah. was like, yeah, I was, I was like, wow. He just ate up screen. He was like. <laughs> no, that, that guy devoured it, devoured yeah. it. I, I mean, I've talked with a lot of young kids who have watched the show and go, I, I don't, I can cosplay as any doctor. As any um, doctor. Exactly. As any doctor. And like, they could be, they could be a doctor that no one's heard of and they could go, Oh, which doctor are you? Well, this is the doctor who I am. And they can, it, you know what it reminds me of? It mm. reminds me of cosplayers who really embrace the prisoner where it's uh, sort of yeah. like, it's like anybody could dress in anything they want and just wear a number two pin. Right. Mm-hmm. Because number two can be anybody. anybody. And that's the that's point right. of the prisoner is number two can be anybody just like the doctor can be anybody and that's like it's sort of the ultimate cosplay whereas yeah, you know if you what? want to be that, number two all you need is one pin but to be yeah. the doctor it, you don't even need the pin you can just say i'm the doctor cool awesome this is my cosplay tell me more about your doctor kid yeah you know? about the doctor exactly that's mm. you know what and, and in some ways yeah you i thought was really smart what they did because you you take this character you know you take this show you know that has been around since the, the early 60s you know and has innovated science fiction, has inspired so many people. 
And now you really get to play with like a whole new generation of people. Because the thing is, you know, as someone who creates a story, you want people to see themselves in the character, right? And this character is good. It's a good character, like complex, smart, um, beautifully created character that you, and you have so much mythology you can borrow from. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's one of the best things ever. You know, I, I just love it. And, and I will say this, speaking of cosplay, I didn't even know what cosplay was when I was in the fifth grade. Right. But when I was a kid, I had a big mop of curly hair, believe it or not. And I dressed as a doctor on a dare when, oh. I, was, when I was in the fifth grade. Yeah, my son, my, my, because what happened was I loved the doctor so much that all of my friends started watching the doctor. You know, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. They were like, that's what? cool. And they were like, will you come in? Will you come in? Come dressed as a doctor. And I was like, oh, okay. And I had like, I brought my mom's scarf. I had this long raincoat, you know, and I came as the fourth doctor to school, you know. They thought it was cool, you know, at the time. <laughs> well, you know, that's lucky like, for you. I, I don't think <laughs> I don't, couldn't pull that off in, in the well, fifth grade. I mean, it's just, you know, we, we were just, we were just kind of geeky too. I mean, some of us, some of my, my closest friends were like, all of them went into comics and to horror movies and stuff like I was, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's what we kind of vibed off of, you know. Hey, Jake, you still apologize to your girl. I don't think it's going to be that simple. Yeah, your mama was complicated too. Mom's complicated? She had you and you, all right? I ain't got a point there. She was crazy like the rest of them, though. Hey, you know what your grandpa told me? He said, always have a love song for your woman. This way, when they get to fussing, you just sing that song to yourself. When you're through, she'll be done and you can get back to what you want. Loving. That's all that fussing is anyway. All I love it. Clearly, you are a Doctor Who fan because, I mean, that's that's those are the folks that we want to come and visit on the podcast. I'm, we also that's over the Doctor, yeah. <laughs> but we also know that Doctor Who is not the end all and be all of your fandom. So whenever oh, yeah, we yeah. have a guest on, we have yeah. them bring on a show that isn't about Doctor Who. So John, tell us about the show that you have recommended for us for this month, and tell yeah. us why you chose it. Um, yeah, well, I, I chose Lovecraft Country, and I was a big fan of it. I was a big fan of the book. Um, I actually got a chance to talk to Matt Ruff. Uh, I interviewed him uh, at, in San, uh, San Francisco for a Black and Brown Comic Arts Festival. And um, yeah, I was watching it as I was, you know, in quarantine, you know, because it came out, you know, uh, during quarantine. And um, I know a lot of my, you know, it, it's, it just it just hit a lot of the notes about some of my research I was working on, you know. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peele's work. Uh, actually, I got a chance to um, to meet with him right before the show was out. I think they had just made the announcement that they were going to be doing it. I'm a big fan of Misha, Green, Misha Green's work. I, I was a fan of Underground. I hate that it got canceled. But, you know, if it hadn't gotten canceled, would she have been able to work on the show? You know, that's the other thing. So... Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah, and, and being and, and having this love hate relationship, I wouldn't say love hate relationship, that's too strong. Love concern relationship with HP Lovecraft's work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because um, I'm I've really been in Lovecraftian horror for a while. Um, I, I'm, I'm a you know, I've studied his work. I mean, everybody, you know, if you're a fan of Alan Moore's work, you've, you've studied his work, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So he's affected 
so much, so many people's work. And I thought it was interesting that um, the way that he thought about identity and, and class and, and all the different phobias and xenophobia that he had about everybody, he wouldn't have been able to write the type of stuff that he wrote, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, this actually wasn't how he ended up. I mean, I think as I read before, like at the end of his, his life, he realized like, man, you know, I was wrong about this kind of stuff. He started to actually change his views about other people. But for most of his life, I mean, he was, you know, racist, sexist, classist, you know, all these different things, but also a brilliant storyteller and really, really wildly imaginative and prolific as hell and, you know, kind of changed how we thought about like, you know, storytelling culture even. Like the fact that he did like an open universe, you know, with, with the Cthulhu mythos and stuff, it's just, it changed the way we thought about, you, you don't get like the Marvel universe without something like that, you know what I'm saying, with that idea. Yeah. You don't, you know. So I give him his props, but also, you know, he's problematic. And I like the fact that, you know, Misha Green took this really cool book by Matt Ruff, who, by the way, is a white writer, you know, right. who decided that he wanted to deal with these issues and expanded it into these different aspects of Black speculative culture that's happening right now. So it's, it was a very timely piece. Um, and I think that it just resonated with me on so many different levels as far as like as a scholar and as a creator, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a, a show that is, I'm looking forward to the next 20 years worth of conversations about Lovecraft Country. The conversations haven't really, I haven't found too many of them online because what I really want to do, you know, I watched this show and after every episode, all I wanted to do was talk to people, but I hadn't watched the next episode. So I really, I missed the window of watching it um, as it was coming out. So Mm -hmm. we could all chat about it one thing at a time. Um, I just briefly, I just, uh, for listeners, if you haven't listened to the imaginary worlds episode, um, inverting Lovecraft, which John does appear on, uh, with our, you know, Pasco's guest, Eric Malinsky, um, it is a fabulous episode. It's, it really gives you a lot to think about regarding both Lovecraft country, but also just HP Lovecraft as a human being and our culture's, uh, just reflection of, of the work. Um, yeah. And so, and, you know, the racecraft uh, being a huge part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's a conversation. It's another conversation entirely, um, yeah. which is intertwined with what we're going to be talking about, but it definitely is one that could go on for a really long time. And if you want to start that conversation outside of this podcast, there's other mm-hmm. podcasts talking about it. Definitely go check out um, Imaginary Worlds Inverting Lovecraft. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So you, you were watching it uh, as it aired, correct? That's correct. Well, and the thing is, is because uh, I'm really good friends with Kenitra Brooks, who I think was also featured in that episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was writing about, she was basically like, she writes for The Root, you know, which is right. the, uh, the Afro-American uh, kind of like cultural site that was that was co-founded by Henry Louis Gates Jr., you know? Right. And so, yeah, and so they, he, she was doing like a weekly breakdown of it, you know, and I was her Lovecraft guy. <laughs> so nice. Because you know, yeah, she got the... Um, she got of course, all the different types of references to Afrofuturism and black horror stuff. But then, you know, she, we would have like a, a, um, a debrief after every, every episode, <clears throat> because I think her column was due like that Monday or Wednesday or something like that. It was, due. Oh my gosh. Wow. <clears throat> and so she didn't have a lot of time to, um, to turn it around. And so what she would do is like call on different friends of hers who are geeks and scholars to talk about the different aspects of the show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from different standpoints. And so I, w- I had to watch it in real time because she would have like murdered me if I didn't. <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Yes, oh, she's, I, yes, I had to watch it. So. Yeah, she's amazing. And uh, now yeah. that I've watched the show in its entirety, I'm I'm really looking forward to to reading both her take and just just kind of delving into just her her academic ideas too, because there's there's yeah. so much to parse yeah. from that. Brent, am I correct in assuming that uh, you, like myself, started watching the show fairly recently? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, as soon as John told us what he uh, was going to pick, that's when I started. And um, right off the bat, I will tell you that I really loved it. It's a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I didn't know what to expect when I first started because although I've heard of Lovecraft, I don't recall reading anything of his unless it was in school or something. Um, mm-hmm. I only found out maybe last year that he was a, a big racist and fought um, – also last summer there was a, a big finish story with the sixth doctor called the Lovecraft invasion mm. where, where he meets him and, and they confront that issue during the story. Is that right? I mean, well, it's really I right, don't yeah. know how that just came up for the first time, but I'm writing that down for <laughs> later on this evening. I want to check that out. Uh, yeah, so. and I think it's also on their site for maybe 1299 or something. But, uh, I'm happy to send okay. Big Finish my money. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm down. That's, that's cool. And it's but, funny because Lovecraft has come up a lot. I feel like in in quite a few of our uh, conversations with our guests in the last year or so, um, this definitely mm-hmm. has been a topic of conversation. And I know that um, we're gonna have Chris Spivey who um, did the Harlem um, Unbound. Um, oh wow! Really? Yeah. yeah. That's cool. I really liked it. That's so well done. Yeah, so I'm, I'm imagining we're going to continue that conversation. Uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully this year. I, I say that now, and I just did something I hate to do, which is talk about a future guest before we've actually got them to record. <laughs> but you know, if 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 I hear a word from him soon, uh, he is a huge Doctor Who fan, which is I was very excited to find out. So uh, I can't wait to have that conversation. But we're having this conversation. Um, well, yes. Yeah. Please uh, go ahead, Brent. Well, for this one, uh, for the show, I I really was hooked from the start, and. Um, but one aspect I didn't quite get for the first couple of episodes was that um, absolutely every single white person was evil. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, that's, that's a little bit unrealistic. I, I don't, but then I got it. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that in all of Lovecraft's books, all black people were evil. All yes. of them. There were no exceptions. <laughs> so yeah. if they were going to reverse the race roles for this story, you know, then they were going to go all the way. And they yeah. did. And I'm, that's great that they did that. Um, and to be honest with you, as far as HBO, uh, almost every HBO series that I've seen has been really slow. Uh, I enjoyed some of them, like Game of Thrones, and especially the latest season of uh, True Detective with Mahershala oh, yeah. Ali. Yeah. But even those were super slow. But this one, this show, really kept my interest the entire time. And uh, I think one reason was because every episode was almost a standalone episode, but they all ten were connected. That's right. And it, it was it was really well done, and I wouldn't mind watching it again sometime in the future. Yeah, I watched it a couple of times. I watched it with my wife fairly recently, and you know, one of the things that borrows from the book is the because uh, because they do they do change quite a bit of things. You know, uh, some some characters' uh, names and genders and stuff like that. Um, but the way this kind of like borrows from <clears throat> from uh, pulp fiction, you know, like it's serialized and it actually is like almost like a monster of the week kind of idea. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> it's actually really cool, and they play around with different genres, right? I mean, when they go into the the library, it's almost it almost feels like National Treasure or something like that, where they're like <laughs> you know, on this like expedition under under the ground in Boston. 
Um, and the fact that the tunnels are all connected throughout America, I was like, wait, what? That's that's crazy. Um, yeah, and they, you know, they, they deal with a lot of really, really uh, taboo issues, you know, too. Um, one aspect of the show that, you know, got a lot of flack, though, was the killing of the, the Native American uh, transgender uh, woman, you know. Um, and even like Misha Green said later that, you know, she felt that there wasn't enough nuance uh, to kind of deal with that. I mean, um, there were a lot of Black viewers who did feel like it was like kind of like trauma Olympics. And it was like, you know, it, was, it felt like it was kind of trauma porn to a certain degree. I don't agree with that. I think that there was a lot of catharsis and healing. Um, obviously, there was, it did deal with trauma. You know, I mean, they went back to Tulsa, for God's sake, you know, um, which is honestly one of my favorite episodes. I was in tears the whole time. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I think um, when I was watching this, you know, I was, we're in the middle of this tumultuous, you know, aspect of our country's history, you know, um, the, the, the pandemic has been weaponized and, and politicized. And there are all these different riots and protests, you know, about the George Floyd incident. And, you know, like I said, I, I had, you know, I lost my sister and I think, you know, I was just feeling a lot of different things. And so to see um, how that, how well that was put together, I mean, I, I literally was like in tears the whole time. And it weren't necessarily like tears of pain. It was just like, just, I thought it was a beautifully done, you know, episode, you know, um, the Tulsa, the Tulsa time travel story, you know, mm -hmm. and I actually had come up with this um, theoretical framework called uh, Denia Chronosomatic Travel. And it's about like time travel that's related to pain, you know, Denia meaning pain, chrono of course meaning time travel, time and like somatic meaning the body, right? So different types of trauma that happen to the body um, causing someone to time travel. And we've actually seen that in different stuff, even like, um, uh, Samuel Clemens, uh, uh, was it a, a Confederate Yankee. Yankee? He gets run, he gets like hit by something, right? He, so so yeah. it's like this is a this is something that happens in like a, and even like Kindred. I mean, you know, it's, it's well, I was related, say Kindred, yeah, it feels it's related to to, tra to trauma. And so this was like that too, where basically, you know, um, Hippolyta becomes almost like a conduit of the different trauma to open up the, po the portal. You know, what I'm saying that kind of thing. There's so many wonderful meta elements in it too it it, it it was just like all the things that i wanted to see at the time you know in one show you know yeah i don't cry much i'm <laughs> not an individual who is in touch with uh, my emotions uh in a particularly healthy way and i cried throughout this entire show um and and it's what's fascinating is i, I and i cried for different reasons this is a show i mean like i thought all right, this is a show where I'm going to get scared. This is going to be a scary show. And what's amazing to me is this show was terrifying. And then the monsters showed up and I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> because, <laughs> because you're talking about Monsters of the Week. When we deal with love, Lovecraftian horror of the supernatural variety, that's when I could breathe. Right. Because there is, a th there is just this constant feeling of dread. Yes, sundown man. that is that is that is from the point of view uh, that is just a the black experience yeah. that i as a white viewer have never seen mm -hmm. um i mean i've i i understand it from a theoretical level but it it they did such a good job kind of placing us like the sundown 
is, a, is amazing. It's, it's amazing. A, it's such an amazing episode. Um, people had never heard of Sundown Towns, mm -hmm. which really tripped me out because so many of them are in the Midwest, you know? Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it was just like, I was holding my breath the entire time when they were trying to make that state line. And then at the end of it, they still like, ah, nope, we still got yeah. you. You know, I was like, oh, yeah. man. You know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, Brent, you, you made this observation too. This is an anthology show. For the first five or six episodes, it's an anthology show. Yeah. yeah. Because that first episode is its own story. You could have made that a 90-minute film yeah. at, in any decade like it, it works. Like you could, you could make that film and never show the monsters. Yep. Could you imagine? Like that feels like a 1970s horror film. Um, and you know, it has that catharsis post Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? Like the, 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 the heroine with the caked in blood yeah. riding in the back of the truck. That's what that episode feels like. Mm -hmm. And then you get the stinger that leads you into episode two, which can we just, and again, I, we're going to say this at the very beginning, huge spoiler warning for, oh, for yeah. this show. Feel free to spoil anything you want because we're going to have yeah. to say it from the get-go. I thought the show had jumped the shark. I felt like, where are they going to go after episode two? It felt like the book must clearly have just been episode one and episode two. And then they just threw in everything and it just set up everything else. But it, it felt yeah. like we were getting uh, a completely different show with the same characters moving back and forth and yeah. uh brent you you texted me and it's like i couldn't i can't believe they killed george no, <laughs> it's no. just like, yeah it's just and it's such a bummer too because like and i get that because a lot of the times you have to kill somebody to show like the stakes and it's it certainly mm -hmm. like this show has those stakes they're palpable but man george was us like yeah. you know it was and so yeah. early yeah. too George was great, yeah. And also, too, I love the pastiche. Yes. I love the fact that, like, the musical soundscape was all over the place. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. They actually really played around with pastiche of, like, time. Like, it was very um, anachronistic. I, I love that aspect of it. Huge. The soundtrack, yeah. but both of them, both <laughs> the actual score and the sound soundtrack is all I've been listening to for the last week. The um, sound bites, too, like the, the spoken word poem, like the James Bond. Oh! Stuff. But, yeah, um... Yeah, using using Whitey's on the moon. With, oh my uh, God! And I was like, "Yo, they are not they are not playing." Like this was, but you know, the thing that got me was I haven't met Sonia Sanchez. Like the whole piece is like, "Where is your fire?" Uh huh. And, and, uh, oof! And, and doing a Tulsa episode was just bald. They I wrote they, they wrote a freaking opera to go with that man. They wrote mm -hmm. an opera. I was like, for real. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. They they were they were coming with they were coming with some really serious commentary. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it, actually. I mean, I, I had my issues here or there, you know, some, some of the pacing and stuff. But um, overall, I was like, having to do this the way that they had to do it, I'm thinking about all the hands that are on it, you know? Right. Um, also, too, two of my friends work on the show. Like, uh, my friend, Afua Richardson, actually... Name-checked! Yeah, she was <laughs> name-checked. But she also, she was the artist, you know, who drew for um, almost a man D. You know, she was... Yeah. Yeah, she was. What's really interesting about that is that you have Dee drawing the character that her mother becomes, mm -hmm. right? Then Afua gets name checked in the show, right? And now Afua dresses as a character. It's like meta meta. Does she? Does <laughs> yeah, she? Yeah, she does she plays as a character? Yeah. So yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And then you um and then my friend Ashley Woods, she actually designs some of the monsters for the show. Oh well, well done, Ashley. Yeah. 
Yeah, and she did a lot of this. she did some of the storyboards. She's from Chicago, and she's a really talented uh, comic book artist. And she worked on the storyboards and stuff for the show. So that was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, and so I think overall, I was like really. You, you mentioned the idea of like you know the, the racecraft piece. I mean, I started thinking about like this kind of new, you know, reverence, but also critique of Lovecraft's work through that lens. You know, and and right. I started to put like. Lovecraft Country in there, but also the Battle of the Black Tom, mm-hmm. um, Harlem Unbound, I think, Bitter right. Root, the, the piece by, you know, David Walker and uh, Sanford Green and Chuck Charles, uh, Chuck Brown, you know? Yeah, well, and, you uh, did the, you did, you worked with that, right? Didn't you work yeah, with Bitter Root? Yeah, I edit the, I edit the back matter for them. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, because I, um, I just understood how, how, how potent that book could be, you know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to have a hand on it. I was like, just, you need someone dealing with these issues you know and they won eisner for best continuing series too by the way yeah and then um then of course you know our own book box of bones i think falls in that category and then you have stuff like uh Fenris and clark's ring shop uh, i think also falls into that category too so you see this interest in uh lovecraft's really really great ah see <laughs> really great um use of metaphor the, the mechanics of the monster you know mm-hmm. but then feeding it through this kind of like racialized lens and then i came across this book called racecraft where they talk about racism being like a spell <laughs> and i was like what <laughs> so it's like critical race theory book that actually talks about belief and witchcraft but through this racialized lens it's like well then it's racecrafty and horror bam yeah it's kind of worked its way out so i was like yeah and so these two sisters who are actually siblings by the way it's not black women but sisters for real um <laughs> they were just thinking about like just the strange uh conundrum that racism and how it how it plays out you have like someone who is like a devoted you know uh christian who loves people who serve their country but then go and try to storm the white house <laughs> you know what I'm saying? you know I'm like, okay, <laughs> how do those things fit in the same space? You know, they, they really can't. They, so you have this kind of like disruption of reality, you know, of, of how uh, you, have to, you have to think about it. You know, like, so in order to, for an institution like slavery to happen, it has to be this strange, you know, weirdness, you know, this, this cosmic strangeness to actually even make that possible. Even like think of someone as three fifths of a person, for instance. That has to be. Yeah. How do you even like logically? How do you deal with it? You know what I'm saying? So, so that's the thing. It's like so. I was like, you know what? This makes sense to me as far as like a, a, a how you have how you can have discussions around this. You know, I mean that's yeah, and it just totally made sense to me. Lovecraft Country made a lot of sense to me. Um, I think they dealt with some amazing issues. Uh, the idea of passing, you know, for instance, like how she passed for white. She would mm-hmm. take the potion, which is something that's in my other book, uh, Blue Hand Mojo, which is behind me. <laughs> <laughs> you guys won't be able to see it, but you know, I mean, listeners won't be able to see it, but uh, yeah, that uh, the idea of a pa- of passing is 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 uh, this kind of mystical idea too. There was just so much, you know. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack in that show, and I and I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to the the academic. Yeah, well, we're yeah. working on an academic book. You know, me and uh, Ronaldo Anderson and Kenitra are working on a, a, a edited volume, actually. I cannot uh, wait. Speaking of books, um, I'm assuming you read uh, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. Um, yes. Is, is yeah, the yeah. book pretty close to the show? 
Is there... No, no um, yes and no. I mean, that's, they're, they're, they change some things. You know what I'm saying? Like George doesn't, doesn't die, right? And then, um, as I recall, and then, you know. Christina's not even in there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing with that, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of, as I recall, that's not, um, that's not in the book either. Um, I think the pacing is very different. And like I said, there's also, wait a minute, and then the whole piece with the Korean War, right? Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not mm-hmm. been there. Yeah, that's not in, in the book either. So yeah, so they, they added a lot. They expanded from it quite a bit. They, they kept a lot of the tone, the pulpy tone. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Matt was having some very cursory um, explorations around race uh, in there. But um, yeah, there, there's a, I, think it, I think it deviates in some really interesting ways uh, for the show, you know? Yeah. Also, too, um, the fact that <laughs> that Tick's son—they allude to the fact that Tick's son wrote Lovecraft Country. They even yeah. like remix that, you know, what I'm saying <laughs> like, and they talk about the changes in the book or from the book to their real life. You know, what I'm saying, like, right? Yeah, yeah. In the, actually, on the it's show, super, it's super meta. Actually, <laughs> so, it's super Doctor Who. Yeah, it's, it oh, it's yeah. like it was one of those things where we've started asking our, pa- uh, our patrons. My God, I'm such a librarian. We've been asking our guests to uh, recently, like, how would Doctor Who fit into the show that you want to talk about? And yeah. I'm halfway through the show going, oh, <laughs> this, I don't I even mean, have to ask this question. This, yeah. this feels like a Doctor Who probe. I mean, like, it feels like any episode of Doctor Who plus Rosa, and it's sort of, and you know, like, there's that same yeah. level of dread in Rosa. Nothing in Doctor Who has ever scared me, with right. the exception maybe the empty child. Like, I turned the lights yeah, on yeah. for the empty child. But the moment the, the police car pulls up, in Rosa, like that's, I think it might be the single most powerful moment in Doctor Who as far as just like that instantaneous switch of emotion. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, uh, it was so well done. And this show took that beat. I'm not saying they took it from Doctor Who, but they took that beat and they just went, here, here's 10 episodes of, of that every single time. Welcome mm-hmm. to not being able to unclench for, for an, one hour a week. <laughs> it was a lot, man. It was a lot. And then you look at like, oh man, when 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 Tick gets control of the Shoggoths, you know what I'm saying? Um, and he and they and they come and like just wreck those cops that were like, oh, in that, ugh, whoa! I was like, um, so I guess the spell worked, huh? Mm, yeah, God. yeah. I'm like that's gonna leave a mark. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, I I pride myself as a as someone who writes and who's who's consumed a lot of media with yeah. being able to predict how a show is going to go. And yeah. I, there's, I mean, like. I'd say 80% of my predictions for, for this program, I, I, I saw coming, you know, there's, it's like, once you start getting into time travel and once you realize that you're going to be able to step into multiple pulp genres, I was like, okay, I, I have a very good idea of how this is going to go minus some details. And, and on the whole, I was fairly right. Not bragging. I'm just saying, and there, it didn't lessen my enjoyment of it, but right. I didn't see that coming. And, uh, <laughs> and both of the potion related transformation scenes I didn't see coming. Speaking of body horror, uh, yeah. um, you know, every once in a while you're going to have a movie or a show that's going to have a scene that defines it. Um, and I, for me, the show is always going to be the, the, the slothing uh, of the, the body from, yeah, from yeah. one transition to the other. Transition. Yeah, it was just... It was, I've it never was seen anything cool. like it. It was, was so perfectly gross. done. It was difficult to work. Well, also, too, you know, that, that opening dream, you know, it shows you... Oh, my... So good, yes! It shows you all of the different genres at first. Like it's, it's telling you what it is, right? 
Mm-hmm. And then the fact that he's like, I got you, kid. And he actually is the part. He's the he's the faceless stranger that yeah. saved his father. I was like, oh, I thought God. I thought the father was going to save himself. That's how I was. Yeah. I assumed that he was actually going to show up and save himself because um, Montrose's arc was possibly the most difficult part for me because he, I feel like his arc actually peaked halfway through the episode, halfway through yeah. the season when he yeah. finds it's okay for who he is. I yeah. bald, by the way, bald. Yeah. The bald at that pose, scene. The pose moment. Some people yeah. 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 Really yeah. Pose. I mean like, you know, like I, there's, there's certain levels that I can relate to on this show. Not, yeah. not a lot of them, but there's some that I can. And like, I, I saw that it was just an amazing scene. Um, but I really then got frustrated because I wasn't sure what was going to happen with him as a character because I felt like he did so much damage to the family, you know, that he was constantly, well, I mean, and even to D like, he's the reason that she can't defend herself against uh, the girls. Um, He slaughtered this character, which, you know, like for what reason, for no reason. And it didn't go here. I thought for sure he was the thing he was drinking from his flask was going to have, because it's they show him that he's from the beginning involved in this in a way that tick doesn't understand and i thought for sure he knew something that they didn't in a way that was going to be malevolent or some kind of interesting thing and it's like i figured maybe what he was drinking from was keeping him potentially uh there was something about him that he was keeping in check nope didn't happen it's fine and i felt like maybe that i don't want to i don't want to cash aspersions on the show there are a couple of bits of the story that i wasn't satisfied with that i felt yeah, like yeah. didn't didn't and that was one of them where it's just like i found that i mean i know not every relationship and every arc has a satisfying cathartic ending for your viewers but it was his was rough his was very rough he, he was a, I, I think that yeah the amount of self hurt and the, and the amount of like trauma mm-hmm. that he had to go through to like protect himself so he had trauma inside of trauma oh so, yeah yeah that was that was wild yeah. Um, but also too, I mean, it just felt good to see this beautiful bulletproof woman walking through the streets of Tulsa. One of the most iconic things I've ever seen in my yeah. life. Her clutching that the, the book of names, you know. Mm-hmm. But the other thing too about that is that there is uh, there's this thing called the book of redemption that's actually part of the Tulsa story. So there's a there's a Bible um, that's filled with the names. Of the people that helped rebuild the church that was burned in Tulsa. It's mm-hmm. called the Book of Redemption, actually. And um, yeah, and it's kept in the, it was it was in the basement of the church, you know, after the fire, you know. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and so, and it has the names of all the people that helped pay off the, you know, the rebuilding of the church. You know, that's something that actually is a real thing in, oh, in cool. Tulsa right now, you know, so which I thought was pretty astonishing, you know. So, I don't know, it's just... Um, there was so much cool stuff. Well, the fact that uh, D obviously was the was the person that pushed Atticus back into the time travel tube, right? They referenced the fact that it was a woman with a steel arm, you know, that pushed him into back into the portal. That's some Doctor Who stuff. Gotcha. That was D. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, um, I don't know how to take, and I, I, John, I really want your opinion on this. The yeah. and we're we're gonna spoil. We are going to spoil this. The very ending. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to feel about D killing Christina. Right. Um, you know, I, I have a think about, I'm sorry. Go. No, please don't. I, I mean, don't, I, I don't, I don't think that was the same D. 
I think that I think that that D was 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 another D. You know what I'm saying? Because because it's not it's not her character. I almost feel mm -hmm. like that this is an alternative. You know what I'm saying? I mean, doesn't it, didn't it feel like it wasn't her? You know what I'm saying? It felt very much like it wasn't her. And yeah. and I get I I so I, I feel there's a couple of ways we could read it that. Christina is a part of the problem that caused her to lose her hand, which was her connection to her art, which was her great gift. Yeah. And that we're moving her into uh, a science fiction future where she's going to, she will grow up to be, she, she basically has split. She's now in the darkest timeline. That's right. But the fact that she's dealing with the Shoggoth, which I think is fine, like perfect. Like I, there's that moment where she get to put her hand on the Shoggoth's head and it, it connected with her and tick handed over but the calloused way in which she did that, I felt the hopeful message that I got from Dee, my favorite character on this show. Well, actually, yeah. like, um, uh, yeah, Hippolyta it's just, and, and Dee, both of them, like their relationship and that story arc and like just the episode where it's focusing on Dee and her struggles yes. as a, just a young fighter. Like I can see her in the future. I can see 20 something yeah. D with a robot arm and her, yeah. her like battle scarred Shoggoth yeah. fighting in, I mean, like, I want to see that, but I want to see that. <laughs> exactly. I want to see hopeful D and I don't like, I just felt like that was just, it felt, I felt betrayed in a way. And it's like, I know this show isn't necessarily for me, but yeah. at the same time, like you want to trigger me hurt a child. And for me, right. the, when she did that, that was. It was a type it, of violence. It was a type of violence inflicted her. upon. Or, yeah. And I just, mm -hmm. and like, I don't know if, I don't know what they were trying to say. And maybe you're I felt right. That, I felt that too. I, I felt like, I felt like that. Cause I had a conversation with my friend Tana about that. She said she didn't like it because it was so different than what she was. The setup for it was different. And I think mm -hmm. I was like, I think it was another D. I think it was, a, you know what I'm saying? I, I really do think that she, that that wasn't the one, that wasn't the D that we had been exposed to. You know what I'm saying? You know, cause yeah. she, she was so different, you know, it just, it just opens up a lot of questions to me, you know? when a character acts out of character, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you though. Yeah. Overall though, I love the show. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, you know, another, a small thing that I, that I wish, I wish they could have got Nino Simone's Cinnamon. I love, I, I like the version that they use, but I really mm -hmm. prefer Nino Simone's Cinnamon. Me too. And maybe it's because that's one of the best things, even though I enjoy the movie, but you know, the, the whole, uh, the Thomas Crown affair. Uh-huh. At the end, when he returns the painting, mm. yeah, just like, just, and, and that, just the piano that, run. Ding 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 ding. I was like, oh yeah. my god, this is so dope. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. And so whenever I hear that, I'm like, I want to hear Nina's version. We were talking about the soundtrack because and that the music on here is fantastic. Um, it's can you, Brent? Uh, I mean, it's so good. I mean, it's a I mixture of everything that you want to hear. I really love Nina Simone, and I think I like too. "Little Girl Blue" is like one of the most beautiful songs ever written. Yeah, and uh, yeah. plus she was a North Carolina native, so that's awesome. Yeah, uh, she's the truth, man. But I, I thought it was cool that Centerman was the was the theme, and I had first heard that song in a commercial for the um, O.J. Simpson documentary that was oh, ESPN wow. did a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, that's I how that's how I got into her music. Yeah, Thomas Crown for the first time I heard her music though was in. Um, the American remake of La Femme Nikita. What was it called? Point, Point of No Return? Point of No Return. Oh, right, yeah. With mm -hmm. Bridget Fonda. That was the first time because she her nickname was Nina. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it's so funny. I Maybe, I, I, I'm pretty sure I listened to it before. 
Right. Um, we were a big Billie Holiday and Ella yeah. Fitzgerald household growing up. Ooh, like they, see, they the were Billie Holiday. There's a new Billie Holiday movie, I think, coming out. I, think. I have yeah. not heard that. Yeah. Okay. Also, I've got to look that up. Yeah, and I think I see that what's her name is playing um, from Preacher is playing a uh, old girl from Lovecraft Country uh, with the bananas. Jesus. Uh, just, oh, uh, Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker with yeah. the bananas. <laughs> that was amazing uh, oh my god that was such oh that scene that, <laughs> whole, that whole episode with Hippolyta coming into her own so and naming her place and, mm, mm, mm. And, and and fighting with the Dahomean Amazons and yeah bro. I would show that episode above all others to people who but not as an example of what the show is but for instance like you know for instance you don't want you don't want horror you can still watch this show and mm-hmm. still go Imagine this, but some more horrific stuff, and then you got an idea <laughs> of the show. But the, the the soul of that episode, like that's that's something just to hold on to. That was the heart of like that was so Afrofuturist, Brent. When you so, say when someone says like, I don't know what Afrofuturism is, uh-huh. show them that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> be like that's Afrofuturist. And you're talking about scary. Episode eight, where those two little girls are coming after D, that freaked me to hell the, out. The, 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 yeah. what they <laughs> to me, that the, was the scariest. The, the, yeah, because essentially that's what it's meant to be haunted, uh, like the stereotype. See, that is mm-hmm. actually the black experience, that you're always hunted by the thing that someone says you are. Right. That, that is, that's a race craftian moment right there, where she's yeah. haunted by, because stereotypes about fixity, and what they really wanted to do is steal her subjectivity. That's powerful. That was when I saw that. I was like, "Yeah." That, but casting it by spitting on her too was like, like that's. But like you know, it's like you could have done anything. They could have done a blood magic. They could have, yeah. you know, they could have. But the fact that he, when she's on the ground and he's looking down at her, you know, they've got that that position, and he spits yeah. on her, and yeah. then that happens. I just ah, it's, it's just. It's, it, it was it was really well done. Also, too, the way that Emmett Till figures into it, like when you oh. think that Emmett Till was actually friends with her, and that he's, yeah. you know, because I forgot his nickname was Bobo. Bobo, yeah, chilling. Yeah, when I said, knew I that going time? in, and still didn't catch that that bit. And when they they said it happened, I was like, <sighs> when he had on the same tie as you know as uh, as Emmett Till, like when they were playing uh, in the house and stuff. And he mm-hmm. said, "Am I going to have a good time?" on my trip you know and they were like no no I'm not gonna have a good time. yeah and i was like damn you know and it's it was and then also christina you know showed her uh connection she wanted to show her connection to um to ruby to yeah. experience what it meant to be killed that way uh yeah it, it was just mm, it, it's it's it came at you in, in different ways. And I think that people didn't know how to explain it. There's a comedian, actually, and I need to send you a link to this, <laughs> who was trying to explain Lovecraft Country to somebody. He's like, it's a ro- romantic history uh, horror. <laughs> you know, he was, trying to, he was trying to explain all the things. <laughs> and it, it's, and he, he, yeah, this dude came up with this baby head and it was like really terrifying and I didn't know the show was too long and he was just explain. he loved the show obviously but he was like trying to explain it to somebody <laughs> it I forgot like, about that part my wife walked in exactly when they showed the little baby head on it she was like what the hell are you watching <laughs> that was crazy I, you it know was. one thing I was proud of I guess I guess the Korean uh, spirit oh the Kumiho mm-hmm. you, you figured it was her like, oh. yeah I was like yep Kumiho yeah 
What was crazy is uh, the first, when she, we find out her true nature, it's the guy from Heroes. And I was like, hey, it's the guy from Heroes. Yeah, exactly. you know, what's his name's friend? Oh God, what is happening? I know. What's called? Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't feel like she was a weak point in the story, but it was the, the um, because it's such an interesting part of Tick's life as yeah. that experience, because it really Pick shows othering. Yeah. 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 It shows the othering in a, in a completely different light. And like, I feel like that's really important thing for us to see. And I think it's important, you know, to see, America, regardless of, of color, but ideology, when we go to another country, what we do and how we inflict our own violence upon other people. But when she came back, I was like, I don't understand what part she is going to play. And I don't think it was as strong, but there's still, there's that scene in the car where they're all singing and it is such a, a really nice scene and it really felt like oh this is this is kind of like this unification scene but it's so betrayed by what happens next and it's it, which well, is so great it's a key scene too because that's when you realize that that's when i realized like that that wasn't ruby yeah too, because she said that she hated that song earlier yeah in this, and yeah i was like wait shouldn't she say that mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah it's it's good <laughs> uh, I did my research. I did my research and I'm really glad I did because I was really upset because I love Ruby. Um, yes. Yeah. The fact that, and I was really confused by um, the invulnerability spell coming back and I was trying to figure out why that happened. And, and, and I read an interview with Misha Green that was basically said like, all right, you may have blinked and you missed it, but like Ruby's not dead. Ruby's in a hospital, probably in a comatose. Yeah. And uh, Christine is the one that put the spell back because she made a promise and she made truly loved Ruby. And it's just like, yeah. and that's the other thing too. It's like, I really, I was kind of curious about where you take that relationship between Ruby and Christina after this. I mean, like this story is essentially complete. You don't yeah. have to have anything have else. Yeah. It doesn't have to be one, but um, it could. Uh, There's so and, many different ways you could take it. I mean, it's yeah. just, I mean, it's, they Dr. Hooted. it. Yeah, it's a very flexible show um we're obviously still dealing with issues around race in our in the world um and uh lovecraft is so i became fascinated by the fact that lovecraft's um effect on popular culture and weird fiction is so powerful and i became like obsessed with like well what is what is what is black folks weird fiction you know what i'm saying and that's why i say oh well our literature is weird, you know, the Afro, or even the Afro surreal, you know, because that stuff like Henry Dumas's work and Toni Morrison's work could be considered that too, you mm-hmm. know. So I think, you know, I, I was like, what's the what's the Afro analog to that type of writing, you know? And you know, even the, even the writing of of, of W. B. Du Bois starts to become like our weird fiction because he writes about double consciousness theory and black people being born with second sight to see themselves in two different bodies and you know, he, he writes, uh, he wrote science fiction, like the comet and uh, right, yeah, you know, stuff like that. And so, he, but he was using it to kind of work through what it meant to be black in America. So, you know, the weirdness is the, the strangeness of what it means to be called black, you know? I mean, I think, yeah, I even said in a recent talk that if you're writing about critical race theory, aren't you writing si- about science fiction? Cause it doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, race, it doesn't race. exist. Right. You know, it's yeah. A major, it's, a, it's a construct. And um, 
that is just that is the the the, the fictive novum, so to speak. You know, race itself is the is the thing. You know, and uh, they get to the heart of that so well. Um, I was going to say to another another really great relationship is the relationship between Hippolyta and George, mm-hmm. where she gets a chance to tell him how she really feels, and he right. and he he says, you know what, you're right, and 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 she forgives him, and they go on adventures together. I know, mm-hmm. I know, that's, that's very Doctor Who. Which is which is the yeah. It was over the top and beautiful, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And some people had issues with it. But I was like, you know what? No, this is if you're into these things, I mean it it it, it didn't apologize for being odd and uncanny, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It was just like, no, this is this is how it's gonna jump off, you know, and you get ready for a ride every week, you know. Yeah, I was I was really I was really impressed with the show. You know? Yeah. Warts yeah. and all, so to speak, you know, because there were some no. warts, you know. Agree was, well. Yeah. 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 And I, 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 you know, I, part of it is like, I wish maybe it wasn't so visceral so it could reach a wider audience because I feel the show is so important that, you know, like I, I would wish I could show parts of that show to young viewers. Um, yeah. to, I mean, to, just mess them up early. I mean, my, my mom showed me stuff <laughs> I shouldn't see. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, I, I want to give you a moment to talk about projects that you've got upcoming because you've had a really busy 2021. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to just you know remind listeners that um, this is a really this is a conversation that we're going to be having for a very long time, not on this podcast. But yeah. um, if you want more information, one of the things that I found very helpful in watching um, Lovecraft Country was I watched the um, the documentary Horror and War. Mm-hmm. which is you can find it in a lot of different locations. Sometimes they're asking you to pay. Um, someone was very sneaky and put up on YouTube a couple of days ago. Thank you, whoever that was. Um, it's 90 minutes long, but it's just a history of, of, of sort of representation within, within horror, but it, yeah. it speaks volumes. And in many ways it helped me to, to come at this problem or just this, this kind of these stories at a, a, a different angle, the way that I wasn't thinking before. Yeah. And I think it was very important. And, and I, really Brent, good. did you get a chance to watch that one? No, not yet. No. Yeah, it's 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 really good. It's really good. Um, and I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, I had never seen Candyman what? until last night. What? Good luck yes. with that. That was <laughs> that's a scary movie. Uh, well, I mean, had I been a teenager and watched it, but what I, I kept on watching it and going, like, I couldn't turn off that academic part of my brain watching that's it. Not, yeah, and it's like, yeah. that's, that, I was so much smarter than I thought it was going to be. And uh, now I need to read a thousand and one articles about that film in order to... I can send you a few things because I, I teach that in my class. Well, you know, I say with my, my next class is this. It's like race and horror. So it's like... Well, we're talking about. Uh, you just let me know and I'll... Uh, if, you, if, that, if it's online, I'll definitely jump on that. Yeah, uh, um, I'm looking forward to the to the, uh, the Nia... Um, oh, what is her? Nia DaCosta film, you know? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, it's I have it. watched that trailer a hundred times. I just, just yeah. and I, I didn't, having never seen the original movie, I didn't understand the Philip Glass score. I didn't understand the references aside from the actual historical references to the unjust killings. Yeah. But like now I watch it about three times today. Uh, yeah. And, and it's like, it takes on such a different meaning. It's, it's, I'm, I'm so excited to see it. That's for something completely different. Yeah, John, 
you yeah. have got a ton before like one thank you thank you yeah. thank you thank you thank you thank yeah, you i've been looking forward absolutely. to this great conversation we clearly if none of us had anything else to do we could probably continue talking about doctor who horror yeah, in general yeah. <laughs> this show in particular for the right. rest of the evening we can make it a five hour long podcast we'd probably all be super happy but our significant others would hate us yeah. but <laughs> he's shaking his head but um you have had a you have just a ton of projects ton yeah. ton ton of projects out so give us just a rundown of i don't know maybe your top five to ten that you're working on well, that so, you want people to know about definitely okay so first of all one of the biggest things that's happened is because of the success of the octavia butler adaptations to abrams um i got a chance to pitch the idea of doing a new book line called megascope which is actually inspired by a device in a W.E.B. Du Bois science fiction story called The Princess Steel. The Megascope is a device that can, guess what, see through time and space and other dimensions, you know. Um, and I thought it'd be a great title for a new line of books. And the books are dedicated to stories uh, by and about uh, BIPOC, you know, subjects. You know, uh, we, are, we are not, uh, you know, um, Basically, if you're if you're a white writer working on a story about African American subject and it's, it's a time travel story, we gonna look at it. <laughs> so just just so you know, you know we're not we're not excluding any creators. It's about subjectivity. You know. What I'm saying? Oh, okay. Gotcha. So for instance, if Matt Ruff brings us a, a story like Lovecraft Country, we'll look at that. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want to think that people that we're excluding creators. We just want to focus on um, aspects of diversity that again don't get focused on that much. So we're also looking at crime fiction. And mm -hmm. we're also looking at um, historical fiction. Like we are actually doing an Emmett Till graphic novel, for instance. You know, that's the other thing. So yeah, it's it's written by Chris Benson, uh, who co-wrote the original story with Mamie Till Mobley, actually. And the story is called Dark Fear, Framing Emmett Till. And it's about protecting the legacy of the story, is what it's about. So he actually is in the story, but he's he's actually like the writer you know what i'm saying it's about mm -hmm. his interviews with her and stuff like that so mm -hmm. eric battle is the artist on it it's going to be phenomenal mm -hmm. but also um you know after the rain uh came out his stuff that came out january 5th it's uh, a um uh, adaptation by myself and david brame who is a good friend of mine that i collaborate with a lot these days and it's um based on a short story uh by nedia korofor called on the road um from her collection kabu kabu and uh yeah it's this Afro-African-Jujuist, Afro-Surrealist uh, work uh, that deals with a, a young woman who is a police detective in Chicago who comes to grips with her dark past, but also with these ancestral spirits that in Africa that want to teach her something about who she really is. So it's like this self-discovery uh, adventure that kind of presents itself as a horror story, but actually like is really more about the tensions of being from two different cultures and trying to deal with those issues you know so um box of bones which is a book that i created with um uh, i use a Gemma everett it kind of presents itself as an anthology it's actually very lovecraft country-ish actually you know because the main it really is yeah is a young woman who um comes across this box of suffering and terror you know that is connected to to black trauma and it's filled with these demons that are um come directly out of the black experience throughout the diaspora you know and so Little by little, while she's working on her dissertation about the box, she starts to discover that the box is kind of haunting her too, you know, and she's connected to it in some way. Yeah, so the first volume just came out. Um, actually, too, people have been liking it. <laughs> so that's been cool. So I was kind of like artist, art director's co-plotter for that. And uh, the second one, you know, we're going to be coming out soon with too. 
Uh, the other book, of course, is uh, me and my good friend and collaborator, Damien Duffy, adapted uh, Parable of the Sower into a graphic novel, the classic uh, dystopian book by the late and great Octavia E. Butler. Uh, we are also going to work on the second book, too. I'm going to work on it now. Um, and I'm doing a lot of editing right now, too. Uh, been doing some some cool, like, consulting stuff with Marvel. Uh, it's just both basically on, in the, in the, you know, on a couple of their... Um, um, documentary shows, uh, Marvel 616, I, I, pop in, I pop in there on the third episode, <clears throat> which is the one about uh, Kamala, no, it's about uh, Miles Morales and uh, Moon Girl. And, uh, and also uh, I do some commentary on um, Behind the Mask as well. Mm-hmm. <coughs> which is an absolutely <coughs> fabulous um, documentary. Yeah, uh, it's really well done. Yeah. And Excuse just, me, just to see I'm, I'm so many faces whose words and art shaped my childhood to see yeah. them all in one. And like, one it was just like, thing. it's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Just to see you, see you up there with, with all of them. It's just like, Oh my gosh. So it cool. Was pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's some, like, some people are my heroes in there. Like Dennis Cameron and people like that. Oh my God. <laughs> Tony Isabella, you know, who co-created Mist- Misty Night and Black Lightning, by the way. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that was, those are some of the, the bigger things, you know, and right now I'm working on, you know, more, more projects and just looking at a lot of scripts and teaching and being a dad. <laughs> so Jackson's so my you, big project. You've, you've got your hands full <laughs> at this, at this moment. Well, uh, thank you for your time this evening. Um, it really was a fantastic conversation. Um, so yeah, just really great to have you on the program. Oh man, thank you so much. And, uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity and uh, sorry for all the coughing. I'm getting over uh, whatever nasty germ my son gave me. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Seriously. Thank you, Brett. Thank you and, too, buddy. And thank you for joining us on who and company, who and company come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at who and company special shout out to pixel who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who, who and company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify, or you can download the show directly from who and Contact us on Twitter at who and company support the show on patreon.com slash who and company or email us at who and company at yahoo.com. Thanks. And see you next month. Slave. I don't want you to work all day, but I want you to be true, and I just want to make love to you, love to you, Ooh, love to you. All I want to do is wash your clothes. Want to keep you indoors. There is nothing for you to do but keep me making love to you. Love to you. Ooh, love to you. And I can tell by the way you walk that walk, I can help. 
Well, by the way you walk that walk And I can hear by the way you talk that talk And I can know by the way you treat your girl That I can give you all the love in it Oh, what work Oh, all I want to do, all I want to do is cook your Love to you. Love to you.